Amen, amen. How many of y'all know that's true? God keeps on making a way for us and let us ever sing his praises. God's people said amen. 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 We're going to turn our attention to God's word. As Steve reminded us at the beginning that God invites us into worship. God calls us into worship. And we respond by entering into his worship. That we confess our sins. We allow his grandness to loom large. We respond to him by singing praises, and we sing with our whole hearts, and then we turn again to the word and let God speak. And so we're going to let God speak, and I pray that he would speak through his servant to his people, that his name would be glorified. We're in Acts chapter 12, and after this week, we're going to pick the pace up in the book of Acts, and uh, this morning, we're going to talk about persecution. One author said that uh, persecution is a lot like uh, sailors. Sailors don't simply respond in crisis when st- storms come to the sea, that they actually train for when the storms might come. And once they come, they're, they're ready. That's kind of what I want for us this morning, that some of you in this room may be in seasons of persecution, and some of you may not. But what I want us all to walk away from this morning is What do we do when it comes? Because it is. How do we stand? I want to tell you this morning that persecution is coming, that God's people are to be prayerful, and that God's people will always be protected. And there's a big payback coming for those who persecute God's people. Vengeance is the Lord's. And so all of these things I want us to remember this morning. This is God's word from Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring Peter out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. The angel of the Lord struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hand, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and the gate opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. 
They said to her, sister, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. This is a different James. This is James, we believe, the brother of Jesus. And to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they too should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory, God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you bless your people right now? Would you use your word to build us up? Would you use your word to fashion us after the image of Jesus? Would you forgive your servant his sins, and would you give your servant strength and clarity and boldness and tenderness and wisdom? And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, persecution is described as the act of punishing or harassing with the intent to injure, grieve, or afflict someone who differs in origin, religion, or social outlook. What I want to start is by showing you persecution as a theme, as a dominant theme in the book of Acts. Andre? So, um, let's try this right here. There we go. All right. You see that? Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 7, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 12, Acts 13, Acts 14. Go to that next slide. Acts 14 again. Acts 16, 17, 18, 18, 19, 20, 21 through 23, 24 through 39. These are all passages where persecution come up. Now, you'll notice that the nature of persecution, it varies. Uh, there's an oath that someone won't eat until Paul is dead. There's a prophecy by the Holy Spirit that Paul will suffer everywhere he goes when he's with the Ephesian elders. Sometimes persecution is a mob violence. Other times it's beating in front of a tribunal. Sometimes it's verbal. Other times it's mocking. Sometimes it's a riot. Sometimes it's imprisonment and beating. Sometimes they're stoned and left for dead. Sometimes people die. Thank you, Andre. The only reason I went through and gave you this, just a glance at, is this. Sometimes persecution is physical. Sometimes it's verbal. Sometimes it's initiated by one person, and other times it's a mob. Other times in the book of Acts, it's political leaders, and other times it's religious leaders, and other times in the book of Acts, it's even employers. 
Sometimes men are on the receiving end of persecution, and other times in the book of Acts, women are on the receiving end of persecution. Sometimes it's men persecuting, and sometimes it's the leading women of a city persecuting the apostles. Sometimes it's the apostles, sometimes it's Aristarchus or Gaius or Sosthenes, that it doesn't matter that when you read the book of Acts, persecution is everywhere. Sometimes it's peace in one region, like last week in Antioch, and while peace is in Antioch, hell is breaking loose in Jerusalem. Sometimes it's Gentiles who are greedy And because a slave girl who makes them profitable now hears the good news, sometimes they persecute the messengers of the gospel because Jesus is bankrupting their idolatry. Other times it's Jewish leaders. You can hardly read a chapter or two in the book of Acts and not be faced with persecution. Now, before I consider what it means for us I want us to just think about how the original followers or the first followers of Jesus, how did they view persecution? That's an important question because I have a sneaking suspicion that they viewed it one way. They embraced it. And if we're really, really honest, we don't view it the way that they do. Paul says in Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Acts 5, the apostles have been beaten. And you know how they respond? They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Romans 5 We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What Paul writes in Philippians 3, I long to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might obtain resurrection from the dead. It reads as if they expected persecution, embraced persecution, and saw persecution as being one of the most formative and noble rhythms of discipleship. How? I think it had to do with their view of union with Jesus. When I speak of union with Christ, here's what I mean. The Bible speaks of us being united in Christ. And so we're united to him in his obedience, aren't we believers? Don't we believe at the core of the gospel, we are sinful. We can't live up to the law of God. God sends Jesus. Jesus obeys. And we are in him by faith so that God counts us righteous even though we know we're sinners. So we're united to him in his obedience. We're united to him in absorbing wrath. We believe that there is no double jeopardy in the courtroom of God because God has punished Jesus. We are united in him, so God counts us as already having been judged on Calvary. 
We believe that we have died with Jesus. As Jesus went into a tomb, the apostles would say, you are dead. You are dead. You are now dead to the old man and to the old woman. We believe in the, we're united to Jesus in his resurrection. He has been raised from the dead, and we have stepped out of the grave, and we are new people with new hearts, new longings, new desires. We're united to him in his resurrection. We're united to Jesus in his ascension. Paul says that he, right now, our lives are hidden with Jesus, and he is our life. And when he appears, we will appear in glory. So right now we reign in Jesus who is ascended on the throne. And so here is what I fear. I fear that I want union with Christ when I'm blessed, but I don't want union with Christ when it means I'm called to suffer for him. And the apostle says, that skewed theology. If we're in, we're all the way in. Not just in his life, not just in his death, not just in his resurrection, we're in him with his sufferings. And that's why Jesus would say it plainly. The servant is not greater than the master. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. Rankin Wellborn says, we're united to a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. We're united to a suffering servant. How can we not expect to suffer if we're united to one who suffered so much? The Christ in you, beloved, is indeed triumphant. He's indeed victorious, but never forget he's a man of sorrows. Paul didn't just resolve to know Christ. He resolved to know Christ and him crucified. Suffering then is the extraordinary means that God has provided for us to move towards deeper communion with Jesus. Here's what I want us to do this morning. I just want to remind you to not forget that persecution is certain. That prayer is powerful in the midst of persecution. And that payback is coming for all persecutors. Persecution, prayer, payback. Let's look at this first point. Believers in Jesus don't forget that persecution is certain. Now, there's a seam here that if you read the section that we looked at last night... There's a famine that's been prophesied, and so Paul, uh, Saul, and Barnabas take up a collection from the north in Antioch, and they come down to Jerusalem. And notice how Luke picks our passage up this morning. Look at verse 1. About that time. About what time? About the time that Paul and Barnabas were coming south with a collection. So all of a sudden, they had peace up north. But the, the hell was breaking loose down here in Jerusalem. Well, why? It says, a man named Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to church, and he specifically targeted their leaders. 
James, the brother of John, and Peter. Now, which Herod is this? This is not Herod the Great, who tried to kill all the Jewish babies born. This is not his son who ruled right after him. This is not Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded, whom Jesus talked to hours before he was crucified. This is Herod Agrippa I. It's important because Agrippa II is gonna come up later in the book of Acts. This is Herod Agrippa I. And did you notice he's doing exactly what the other Herods before him did? He's persecuting the church. Now, there's some irony here because he goes after James, who we know is the brother of John. John, the writer of the book of Revelation, the gospel of John, first, second, and third John. It's that John's brother. Now, what do we know about John and James from the book of Mark? Those are the two brothers who went to Jesus and they upset all the other disciples because their question to Jesus, Jesus, when you return in your glory, make us sit at your right hand and your left hand. It's that James and John. And you know what Jesus tell him? Hey, that ain't enough for me to decide. By the way, can you drink my cup? And they said, we can, we can drink your cup. And Jesus says, and you will drink it. And he was talking about suffering unto death. That James is the first apostle to die. And John, his brother, is the last apostle to die. They drank the cup. Now, what about Peter? This is the same Peter in John 21 that Jesus told him, one day you dress yourself, but there's a day coming when someone will dress you and they will take you to where you do not want to go. And John says that Jesus was telling Peter the way in which he would die. Y'all see the language in this passage? Peter, dress yourself. That's a sign that this isn't the end of Peter. Peter's going to be in a place where he can't dress himself, a place where he has to go and be crucified upside down. But imagine being James in this passage and Peter in this passage as you are being persecuted by Herod. What do you think is going through their minds? Jesus was being so truthful to us. He told us we'd suffer. And here we are right here and now. But I wonder if we ought to read this a different way. See, I think we ought to read that that promise of suffering wasn't just for them, beloved. If Jesus was truthful to them and told them that they would suffer and they did suffer, when he tells the church, you will suffer, he's not lying. He's being just as truthful that if you are really my follower, you will be persecuted. Now, we got to be aware of two dangers here. And I think J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he has a beautiful quote that I want to share with you. He speaks of these two ditches. We need to avoid both ditches. On the one hand, we can so stress the rough side of the Christian life and downplay the bright side as to give the impression that the Christian life, for the most part, is grievous and gloomy, hell on earth all the time. 
And on the other hand, we can downplay the rougher side of Christianity, the daily chastening, the endless war with sin and Satan, the periodic walk in darkness, and of course, suffering. You hear what, pa- what, 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 what Packer is saying? That be careful of thinking that, that the Christian life is exclusively and only either extreme. It's only gloom, it's only doom, it's only persecution, it's never joyful. He says, no, that, that's not biblical Christianity, and neither is it only a bed of roses. You don't have enough power to name and claim and to get people off of you, right? He's saying, look, you got to be careful that the Christian life is not this side or this side, that it's a blend of both. Now, turn in your Bibles because I want to show you that this is what Acts is saying. Look at Acts 18, 9 through 11. I like to hear Bibles turning or seeing fingers doing this right here. Look at Acts 18, 9 through 11. Now, this is Paul. I just showed y'all all the times persecution and stoning and beating and martyrdom happens. But look at this. Acts 18, 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. You hear that? Persecution is around the Apostle Paul. But the Lord in his goodness sends him here, and he gets a year and a half to flourish Last week's text, he stayed in Antioch for an entire year with no persecution. What about Paul in 1 Timothy 2? He says, I urge you that you pray for kings and all who are in high places that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God. You hear what those passages are saying? They're saying that God is going to give you these these oases. He's going to give you these moments of joy where where he is sweet. And at the same time, the same Peter who's getting persecuted here in in 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. 1 John 3, the brother of the guy that's beheaded in our passage, he says, Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do you see the cycle? The cycle of present joy, present peace, present flourishing, and at the same time, moments of persecution. We should expect no more, no less to see the cycle that we see here. Seasons of peace and moments of persecution. We should not be addicted to the first nor surprised or afraid of the second. So here's a question. Do you see both in your life? Do you experience the peace of conscience, knowing that your sins have been atoned for and that you are in right relationship with the king of heaven and earth? Do you sit and cry hallelujah as you ponder the new day that is coming 
when Jesus will wipe away the tears from your eyes and suffering and death and sin will be no more. Do you experience the joy of being in worship? And ain't nobody got no gun to our heads right now. And we can sing loud. And we can worship our king. And we can do it in air conditioning. God is good. And do you experience persecution? As you live right side up in a world that's upside down, you will encounter people who love darkness and hate the light. You will encounter men, women, children, employers, politicians, religious leaders, family members, clergy who do not know or love the truth. It can take numerous forms, but it should come for us all. It comes for you teenagers as you try to follow Jesus amidst your peers. You will be talked about, not asked out, left out, overlooked, mocked, scoffed, and ridiculed. It happens to you who are in college as you hear books like Proverbs that speak of not departing from wisdom, wearing wisdom like a garland around your head as you go onto college campuses and you are surrounded by fools. You will be persecuted. It happens to adults as people make racist and sexist and atheistic comments if you had the courage to pull them to the side and to speak the truth in love, you will be ridiculed and challenged and called a holy roller or fired. It comes for us all. Different forms, different fashions, but it comes. Now here's what I want us to remember. Point two, don't forget that prayer is powerful in the midst of persecution. We'll be in verses 5 through 19. Now to look at this point, I want us to ask four questions. When is Herod doing this? What is Peter doing? What is the church doing? And what is God doing? Now, when is Herod doing this? If you look at our passage, you'll notice, look at verse 3. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Look down in verse 4, that when he seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him to four guards of soldiers, intending after Passover to bring him out. Now, Passover, unleavened bread. Where else have we seen Passover, unleavened bread, another Herod, and somebody else imprisoned who'd soon be crucified? Where? Back in Luke, back in Luke 22 and 23, 
Only back there, it was Herod Antipas. Back there, it was King Jesus. And you know when Jesus was persecuted and crucified? It was during the Passover and the unleavened bread. And so what you're looking at right now is to the day, to the absolute day, some nine years later, these two disciples are being persecuted by another Herod in Jerusalem. That is when Herod is doing this. It's not a coincidence. Now, what is Peter doing? Peter's in prison. The text says he was given four squads of soldiers to guard him. Now, one squad of soldier, one squad of, a squad of soldiers is four soldiers. So four times four is 16. So Peter has 16 soldiers tasked with guarding him. And what they would do is they would rotate. Four of you would be off and the other 12 would be on. And the other 12 would be stationed at various points of the prison. Two going to be inside, two going to be at this door. Two's going to be at the next door on the inside and another two or four is going to be outside. And they work this rotation where some were off, some were on. Herod has deployed 16 men to keep Peter in chains. Now, what is Peter doing while he's awaiting his destruction? Look at verse six. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries were before the door, guarding it. Where else have we seen Peter sleep? You see the theme? When Jesus told him to pray, he says, can y'all not pray? And so we have an exegetical decision to make here. Is Peter being Peter, and he's supposed to be up praying, and he's sleeping, or is there something else going on here? You see, I think something else is going on here. Here's why. Sleep can be good in the Bible, and you can sleep at an untimely season in the Bible. Think about Jesus when Jesus went to sleep on a boat, and there was a storm brewing around him. And his disciples says, Master, Master, don't you care that we're dying? Get up, do something. Now, would you say that Jesus is in sin for taking a nap? Of course not. We say passages like that showcase his humanity. Jesus used the bathroom, and he needed food, and he needed water, and he needed rest. And so we would go to passages like that and say, yeah, bro, Jesus is tired. I get it. We would also say passages like that show us his deity. See, the reason Jesus can take a nap in a boat on the sea is because he knows that he's not going to die a millisecond before Calvary. And he's God. And he made that sea. And so when he tells the sea and the winds and the waters and the waves to be quiet, they bow in worship and they listen. And so we look at that and say, no, Jesus is not in sin. He's human and he's God. So here's what I think is going on in this passage. Peter has seen the resurrected Jesus. He's seen Jesus overcome the grave. 
He's seen Jesus tell the winds and the waves to quiet. He's seen Jesus flex his muscle. And so what I think is happening right here is Peter is able to go to sleep in the jail cell in the same way that Jesus is asleep in the boat, only Peter isn't the one with the muscle. Peter is the one trusting in the God who overcomes hell and the grave. So even if they cut his head off, he wakes up and he's with Jesus, that nothing can happen to him that does not pass through the throne of God. And so Peter, in the midst of chaos and turmoil and suffering, can kick his feet up and say, bro, can I have your lap to take a nap. Now, here's the thing. We know that intuitively. I know Jesus has overcome hell and the grave. But if I know I'm about to be beheaded or crucified, can I let y'all in on a secret? I'm kind of shaking. Right? So here's the question. How does what we know here get down to here? Because for Peter, it's moved beyond mental ascent. It's moved to a nap hours before your execution. How does it move there? What is the church doing? Did you notice what, what Luke tells us the church is doing? Look at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him, for him, was made by the church to God. Look down in verse 12. When Peter gets up and he gets out, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, and there they were gathered together and they were praying. Do not miss what's happening. They had been praying for Peter. That Herod had a weapon, a sword, presumably from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. That's how James died, from a beheading. But the church of God was not left without a weapon. They did not go and ascend to the mount where Herod was staying with weapons. Peter tried that once before. And Jesus told him, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. But I got a sword you can fight with, but it's not a sword of this world. It's over in Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and authorities. And so we're told to put on the helmet of salvation. We're told to put up the breastplate of righteousness. We're told to put on the shoes on our feet. And we're told to do it all in prayer. praying at all times. And this is what they do. They pray and they slay. This is why Peter can lay down between two shoulders. It's because the saints have gone on their knees to God. And before God does anything about Peter's circumstances, he gives Peter perfect peace in the middle of persecution. Do you know that your fight or flight impulses would be in overdrive at this point? Every noise, every step, every rattle of the chain. Is this it? Is this it? And fight or flight is caused by cortisol. But you need melatonin to sleep. 
but melatonin is not produced when cortisol is producing at a high amount. It's why anxious people can't fall asleep because their brains are producing a chemical that keeps them alert. But what you see happening in the middle of the prison, cortisol is shutting down. Melatonin is kicking in. And, G, and, and Peter is asleep as he awaits his persecution. And it will be why, it, that will be good enough for me to just get that picture to see him sleep before beheading. That's a picture. That's something I want to hang in my room. I want to see the, the, the crosses coming and this guy laying down taking a nap. That is a picture of what we can have in Jesus when the world is falling apart. We can take a nap because God is our perfect peace. It will be enough to see that. But God does more than just give Peter peace in the midst of persecution because the saints have been praying. He does more than that. He actually does more than what the saints actually think God I can do. It says prayers were made to God, and all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appeared. You ought to underline Lord, because you can trace the biblical theology of Lord in the book of Acts, and here's where you're going to arrive at. Acts 1-6, Lord, talking to Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Acts 1.21, some of the men who accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out. Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel know, therefore, that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And so it reads as if prayers are made to God. And then an angel of the Lord or an angel who takes his commands from the Lord Jesus or an angel who is subservient to Jesus or an angel possessed by Jesus. And when do we see in the Gospels when a Herod had a Jesus imprisoned around Passover and the unleavened bread and Jesus chose to not send an angel? He says, don't you know I could send legions of angels? But Jesus didn't because it was necessary for him to go to a cross. But this is the resurrected Jesus. This is the resurrected Jesus who got legions of angels. And you know what he's telling this Herod? I ain't even got to send you a legion. I'm going to send you one. My one got more juice than your 16. My one angel that I send, he can go break them little chains. He can nudge him on the side. He can have light come into him. He can sneak him out and y'all don't even know what's happening. He just walks up to a door and it just opens. By the time you realize that my angel done done what I told him to do, you like two days later, buddy. Peter done already went and testified to them praying and he gone somewhere else to preach the gospel. You see, that's what God is doing. This resurrected Jesus who did not summon legions of angels to release him is now enthroned and on power. And what God does in this moment is in the middle of persecution. 
as the saints have been praying, he frees him. What are we learning about prayer? First, that God intervenes when we pray. James and Peter have different outcomes, and both are under the sovereignty and purposes of God. James is killed, and he is more alive now than ever. Peter gets more time to serve and enjoy Jesus, and so prayer is not like a genie that we can just rub and get every single thing we want. If we're approaching prayer that way, then you are befuddled by this right here. God will get glory. And sometimes his glory is allowing this beheading to bring the servant home to embolden the faith of those who watch him die without fear. And sometimes God is glorified by making him go to sleep and then busting him out the jail. Prayer works. God attends to it. God intervenes and changes people and situations. Second, when you are going through it, it is good to have a praying community fighting with you. They were not in the prison with Peter. They were on their knees at her home, and God heard. Third, God's motivation for answering our prayers is not tied to your faith and how much you believe God can do. Did you notice their response when Peter knocked on the door? Rhoda, the servant girl, is the only one in the house. She's a servant girl, and she doesn't even see Peter with her eyes. Peter knocks on the door. Rhoda goes and hears Peter. It says she hears his voice, and she is overjoyed. She is so overjoyed to hear Peter's voice that she runs back to tell him, forgetting that she left Buddy at the door knocking. And so when the mature saints, the non-servant saints, hear that this servant girl is telling her that Peter at the door, they say, girl, you crazy. Get out of here. That can't be him. That's his angel. Ain't them the ones who've just been praying for Peter? They don't even believe that God is really going to do far more than they can ask or think. And here's the thing. God don't need them to believe that. His answering their prayer is not tied to the strength of their faith. It's tied to the finished work of Jesus. He beautifies our prayers and gives us access to God to make sure our prayers are heard and perfected. Peter thought he was dreaming. Peter couldn't even believe his eyes. And when he came to his senses, he had already been out the prison. And then he realizes, whoa, that was a real angel. I'm not dreaming. What you mean, buddy? You have seen Jesus be raised from the dead. How could you not see this? It ain't tied to your faith. It's tied to his son. Still pray. Pray boldly. Pray big prayers. God hears because of Jesus, not your prayerfulness. Last thing, as we are suffering, don't forget that payback is coming for persecutors. Look, family, it's hard following Jesus. 
And it's hard not following Jesus. It's dangerous following Jesus. Yes, you might be beheaded. And it's dangerous not following Jesus. See, it's one thing to be bound in an earthly court. It's another thing to be bound into hell forever. You ain't getting out of that. It's one thing to fall in the hand of powerful men or women. It's another thing to fall in the hands of God. It's one thing to be chained to soldiers. It's another thing to be chained in the lake of fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and you are shut out of Jesus returning to the new heavens and the new earth. And here's what you start to see in this passage. Herod is enjoying earthly comfort at the expense of eternal suffering. And so Jesus is saying, pick it. Which one do you want? Do you want to suffer now and be blessed forever? Or do you want to have this shell of blessing now and be judged forever? Herod is in danger. He's growing in his hatred and rebellion. First he beheads James. Then he wants to kill Peter. Peter is free. Then he goes and kills the 16 men who were responsible for watching Peter. And that ain't enough. He is angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon. There's a famine going on and they done got crossways with Herod. Maybe he's raising taxes. Maybe inflation is going too high and he is over their food supply and he is playing these games with these folks and he's cutting it off. This dude think he's God. And all of a sudden, they need food, so they appease him. He puts on his royal clothes. He gives an oration. And they say, this is the voice of God, not man. And what does Herod do? He does not do what Paul and Barnabas do later when they go into Lystra and there's a man who can't walk and they heal the man and the people say, the gods are among us, the gods are among us. And Paul tears his clothes up. No, don't say that. We're mortals just like you. That is not what you hear Herod saying. Herod is silent and his silence is speaking volumes. He wants their praise. Give me more praise. Give me more praise. You're right, I'm God. And it says at that very moment, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms. What a way to go out of here. This might be the same angel. He ain't finished with you, Herod. He coming back. Why is this here? It's a reminder that if you're being persecuted, it'll be painful. And you'll be tempted to hate and to fight fire with fire. But because payback is coming, we can leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord. And we can love those who persecute us. And we can pray for those who spit on us. And we can serve those who loathe us. And we can do that because that's how Jesus treated those who persecuted him. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How can you pray that prayer unless you know a day of reckoning is coming? Redeemer, persecution is certain. 
prayer is powerful and payback is coming. I want to close with this. Look at how the passage ends. Herod is dead, eaten by worms, but the word of God ain't dead. It increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and guess who they brought with them? John, whose other name was Mark. Y'all know who John Mark this is? This is John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Whoa, think about that. One King Herod has a three-year reign, 41 to 44, and he's gone. And all of a sudden, John Mark, who's going to write another gospel about King Jesus and whose kingdom knows no end. What a beautiful way to end it. His kingdom endures forever. These earthly clowns do not. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We pray for the grace to welcome persecution. Make us, Lord, a people who will so embody the ethics of the kingdom and the way of the king that we are peculiar to this world, that we don't fit in, that we rub against those who love darkness as we love light, and make us courageous like Jesus, who gently speaks the truth and love and does good deeds that bears witness to his kingship. And Father, as we enter into our world, make us a prayerful people, a people believing that you will give us the grace to stand and endure as help from above comes down below. Father, help us to not be like those who draw arms and retaliate. May the the weapons we use be those that are spiritual in nature. And may we fall to our knees and use the weapons you give us like righteousness and salvation and the sword of your word and prayer. Comfort our hearts, Lord, when we are at our the end of our ropes. May we know that payback is coming. You will either judge those who persecute you or you will redeem them and make them your own. Make us people, Lord, who see life and live this way for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.